Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Hello everyone, welcome into Garden of Doom. And this week we have with us, uh, this is probably going to drop as a bonus episode, is a uh, 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 prior guest, Bruce Fenton from the UK. How are you doing today, Bruce? I'm doing very well, thank you for having me back. Yep, just uh, enjoying a little bit of nice summer weather. Okay, so right, and how's how's the baby doing? Still a baby or, or at toddler stage? Yes, just coming up towards eight months now. Oh, so still baby. That's just crawl, you know, Dutch crawl and stuff. Yeah, it's quite fun. The more fun part, not just the bad sleep. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're in the you're in the golden age. Is is uh, he doing yeah. equations yet? He's quite he's a smart kid. I mean, he's he's come up with a few little words here and there. So he's quite early on that. So we'll see what happens. You know, maybe he's gonna start outsmarting me pretty quick. Oh, I, I would expect nothing less from, from your child to, to be already doing advanced research and, you know, doing, mm -hmm. you know, having, saying calculus. Calculus is easy. Um, yeah, so if he comes in, I find him reading one of my books, and that'd be kind of intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So, crossing out things and doing margin notes. So, um, so for those of you who don't know Bruce, he's been on the show previously. You should check out his uh, the prior episode, which was uh, I believe I called it uh, Panspermia seven hundred eighty thousand BC, which is based on uh, one of his theories. That that's the closest way I could um, uh, summarize it. But uh, it's a very interesting show. It's a little bit longer than than most of mine, but we couldn't cut it off because there was so much uh, juice uh, or or so much yeah juice from that squeeze. Um, so check that one out. Uh, he's also, uh, you may, if, for those of you who listen to Earth Ancients, you know, at least for the past few years, you probably know his name because he, 
has been and still occasionally is a, a contributor there. He was the science editor for some time. Um, and you heard him almost weekly. Um, so you can check out some of his work on uh, Earth Ancients as well. But we have him here today. And I asked Bruce to comment on a bunch of stuff because I know he actively researches a, a whole lot of things, most of which have to do with uh, outer space, ufology, and, and things like that, anthropology. Um, but I've been really curious about what his thoughts are on what should be a, a first contact protocol. So, um, so I think we should start with that. So what are your thoughts on first contact protocols? Yeah, no, this is an interesting topic. I mean, a couple of years back, I had a look at what exists out there as suggestions. Um, and there, there, I think there's one group, the kind of independent SETI Post Detection Task Force. Uh, and they have this whole kind of list of organizations that you could, you know, go to, like divisions of the UN, um, certain scientific organizations, you know, political bodies, governments. And, you know, this kind of the idea that you should first have a kind of a private, um, outreach to scientists and these organizations and kind of prepare a strategy with different influential groups. And, it, and like some of this makes sense you know, to write kind of a strategy before going forward with a, a public release. Now, I mean, I think there's some sense to something like that, um, you know, because obviously none of us quite know what will happen, you know, if there is a announcement on the TV, you know, and it says, right, you know, let's say an alien spaceship has been found, crashed into, you know, the Sahara Desert or somewhere, you know, and you know, they've got the video, there's pieces, the whole thing, you know, it's a case closed, these aliens, they, that just goes straight on to TV. It's fair to say none of us know the full implications of that. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. We, there could be some negatives to it you know we don't know how all the different religious groups will think about it we don't know how different countries might view it as a threat you know if one country has that kind of potential technology um you know could there be a, a military confrontation over over it so I, I do understand this idea that we would want ideally to have scientists maybe having a conversation with each other first and then move on to some kind of a discussion between governments and you know, media organizations about how they would come forward with that. Um, I, I do agree that, but I think in reality, it's probably not how it's going to happen because there's so many people that are independently looking at the kind of aliens topic. You know, we've got for the Galileo project now, you know, UAPX, and you know, not just the traditional SETI Institute, you know, and all that kind of side, but we've got independent people. So I don't think all of those organizations would necessarily go through that more conservative traditional channels. I think they're more likely to try and release the, you know, their evidence or their discovery quite fast and kind of, you know, take the credit for what they've done. So my feeling is we're much more likely to end up in a kind of, uh, well, a very unknown waters. Yeah. The potential for something chaotic to happen. And I, I, I also think that maybe that's, the right thing that maybe we just have to just deal with it head on you know if there is this rather than having this in the background opportunity for other interests to perhaps water it down or to misdirect because i don't necessarily trust a lot of the organizations that are being suggested to have those conversations right i don't really know if i think the un um are the best people for example to make any decisions in this 
uh, also some of the the universities and stuff you know i wouldn't fully trust to do it any better than, <laughs> than the individuals making up their own mind and then however you go about it in the end if you're going to come out with the truth which you have to do those issues are going to come up do you know what I, mean? I don't i don't think you can really get around it that if you find evidence of aliens it's going to have an impact in unknown ways no matter how you go about preparing people um i think that's what we're seeing now is perhaps in the wider context of these topics is some level of preparation anyway. You know, we've seen uh, media and scientific organizations moving towards a sensible discussion about aliens. And we could argue that we're already in a kind of a process of preparing the, the wider public. I think that is somewhat true, that whether they know they're there or not, it does seem there's a kind of testing the waters to prepare us to see how people react. So I think that's kind of happening already anyway. And so maybe that has a positive influence. Maybe people are a little bit more ready because of you know the way that they've seen the media shift and the way they've seen scientists, some scientists at least, starting to talk more seriously about the possibility of aliens in our solar system, not just millions of miles away. Um, and also, of course, TV and Hollywood and all that have been doing this for quite a long time, you know, giving us uh, scenarios of what it would be like if aliens were here. So. I'd say a lot of that preparation's already happened anyway. So it's almost at a point where I don't think there's much more uh, spinning it around we can do. I, I think it's going to be a case of presenting it in an honest way and allowing people to process it as they will. You know, and we can't control whether there's some kind of military uh, vying over the debris. I, I, I don't think that's going to be in the control of the average person. Um, we would just have to hope that negotiations, you know, between different groups to share science, you know, would happen. I agree with you. I had um, Reverend Jim Willis on a, a bit ago, and I, I know you're acquainted with him or familiar with him. And he said he doesn't really think it matters because, who, you know, whoever the aliens are, if they are interstellar or intrastellar, uh, either way, they're, they're far and away technologically more advanced than we are. And it's, they're going to dictate the, the, the first contact. It's probably not their first rodeo. And there's a lot of sense to that. But I still think it makes sense for governments and scientists and philosophers, whoever, to game plan. I mean, that that's what, you know, if you don't have, uh, you know, the, somebody used to say a, a failure to plan is a plan for failure, and, and they're right. And there is also, you know, people make plans and God laughs, and there there's something to that as well, which, you know, I think is sort of what you're saying. But at least the plan is a lifeline. You know, it's, it's sort of like a, you know, a box that you can color within um and it may not be relevant given the circumstances but hopefully it's something that's adaptable enough but i, I think that if the first contact is and i hate to use sci-fi analogies but i don't really know what else to do but sort of like in star trek when or the original star trek when you know the the of the mythos of it when you know earth interstellar uh you know uh craft encountered the Vulcans. The, the Vulcans were, you know, probably a hundred years ahead of us in technology or something like that, but not thousands of years ahead of us sure. in technology. Yeah. So, I mean, if I think it's thousands of years, there's no point. You know, Reverend Willis is right. They're, they're, they're going to dictate the terms of first contact or they're going to eradicate us and we won't ever see it coming. But if it's like a first contact, like, you know, and again, I hate to use this, like a colonial era, but you know, like the Spaniards coming to the Aztecs, you know, there, there's, you know, a lot of technology between them, but, you know, it's not, you know, 
you know, had the Aztecs or the Mayas, you know, you know, reacted differently, they, they could have, you know, uh, you know, knocked them out easily, um, or at least over a battle of attrition. So that's, that's probably the most likely scenario that, that I'd look to. I, and the military has a part to play in it, but I don't think they're the only, and, and, and neither are religious. I mean, I think religious has to sort of take a backseat because there's so many different religions. I mean, if anything, you have to find like, yeah. you know, sort of like some sort of shamanic or, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to find sort of like the, the, somewhere on the spectrum between Gnostics and, 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 you know, sh- shamans to find what's closest to sort of the basic universal truths of all religions. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I mean, yeah, I mean, also, I mean, I think that although I said it could potentially be, you know, some, you know, upheavals in terms of, uh, you know, the, the military view on things or the religious, I tend to believe that it would be such a big you know, unknown, such a big question event that most people, including most organizations, institutions and, you know, armies would just have a pause where they'd really be going to just figure out what is happening, who, who is this, you know, what is this? I'd, I'd be surprised if there was a lot of you know intergroup fighting whilst not knowing what this other wants and what this other is doing. So I tend to think we probably wouldn't have as much chaos as is sometimes suggested. I do think that at least for a while there'd be a bit of a pause while everybody just wanted to work out what is this, you know, what's happening, what do we do next, um, and then all that other argument would probably come a bit later. Uh, also, I think that you know, most militaries, well, not just military, I think a lot of uh, institutions as well would be looking again. At, what we have that may suggest uh, past contact. You know, you'd be looking through all your archives and data, looking through you know any discoveries we've made, looking through any um, debris. You know, that you know could that have been alien technology? Could we have had these contacts before? I think there'd be a lot of that going on. You know, yeah. scientists looking through with a new eye, saying, "Well, before we didn't know this was real. Now we do. What about all these accounts people have said of you know artifacts or of contact events?" I, I imagine there'd be a, a an awful lot of data scientists, you know, crunching through um, archives of information, trying to see if we had anything that would help us understand uh, who these others were and, you know, what their interests were in our planet. That might not be done in a universal, unified way. Maybe Russia would do their own thing, you know, the US their own thing, China, I think, you know, there might be some loose collaboration. But even so, I, I don't think it would go straight to fighting between groups. I don't think that religions would really want to stir the pot any more than it would be. They'd be trying to calm down their, you know, their followers and give them some sense of understanding from the perspective of each, you know, religion's doctrines and dogma, you know, because of course people are going to be looking for answers. Um, so I tend to think it might be a lot, a lot calmer than has been, you know, painted by some people as being this you know, really crazy upset i think it might cause a lot of you know inner calm and contemplation and discussion as a first point. or inner panic but i do agree with you that i think the world would sort of hit pause i mean yeah you know because yeah. no one would quite know what to do and uh mm-hmm. you know i think the very religious would have to you know question their religions and the very very religious would you know try to confirm their beliefs but i don't know you know what anyone would do about it. but if Bruce Fenton was emperor of the world for that day, what would your first contact protocols be? How would you approach it? You know, let's just say that we, we knew that there was a ship or three ships or whatever. Let, let's say it, it wasn't an obvious invasion force. Uh, could be wrong because of the technology, but let's say, and it's just sitting there, 
you know, hasn't taken out the ISS, hasn't taken out satellites. It's just sitting there. And so you, you decide, Hey, I'm emperor of the world. I want to make contact. I want to say, you know, we're, we, we prefer to be friends rather than enemies. Um, but we're not pushovers either or, or whatever your message is. Um, how would you recommend, you know, what would your list of, you know, your, your bullet point list be? In other words, what were your first contact protocol, the Fenton pros, well, first well, contact protocols? I think, to be honest, the first thing I would do is is order a, a complete stand down militarily. Um, and I'd want that to be absolutely enforced, that there was no signs that we intend to make any, you know, military moves against them. And the reasoning would be that, you know, if they can, if they have weaponry, if we assume, you know, we can't know that they don't have, you know, anyone that can sit off the, um, you know, just outside orbit and fire on us has already won. You know, it's, the, it's, the, it's like the idea of being on, you know, a small island and you're attacked by a fleet of armed Navy vessels and they can just fire on you from out of range at sea and just pulverize your island, you know? Like, do, do you, at that point, really, the only thing you can do is wave a white flag, uh, open negotiations, right? Because... Uh, there's no way that we can really fight against a fleet that can sit just outside of our you know, range of anything we have and just fire on us or launch asteroids down at us, you know, which is, again, these kind of the potential there is for a, a full eradication of our planet down to where perhaps even microbial life has been sterilized, you know. Um, and so I, I really don't, although we have a lot of movies that suggest that we can put up a fight, I mean, that, Yes, if there was a ground invasion, you know, we saw ships landing and beings were getting out, and, you know, as we see in some of these movies. But if they're just sitting there in ships, you know, or just outside orbit, and they're not doing anything, I think you're in a scenario where, well, look, you know, if they do open fire or something from there, we don't have anything that can, can fight back. So it's, an, uh, such, it's such an imbalance at that point that you have to go fully with the show of, look, we are not interested in fighting. We're not interested at all, you know? Right. Um, so that would be the first thing. I think, secondly, yeah, you'd absolutely be working with uh, all of the experts in communications technologies, you know, every frequency, every frequency, every piece of equipment, you know, every linguist, um, every expert in psychology, anyone who's ever pondered these questions, all the exobiologists and all the... You know, all of these guys in the astrobiology universities, you'd want all these people talking, um, you know, getting getting the very best kind of plan in place for how we could launch a, you know, a kind of a, an attempt at interaction, assuming we haven't heard anything, that a way in which everyone kind of agrees is going to be non-threatening and, you know, and, and includes universal kind of frequencies that we can send a message on. Um, and just make it very clear that we are, you know, we are open to talking. You know? uh, that would be it. I wouldn't want to say too much. I don't think we'd want to uh, give away much. I don't think we want to say the wrong thing. So I think I'd be very careful with just making it, if we can, clear that we are not interested in military engagement and we are open to talk and then await for some kind of response. Because I think the less we say, the better, the more chance of us doing something that triggers a problem. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I, I I keep thinking to uh, Babylon Five when the uh, humans encountered the Mimbari for the first time, and the you know the humans sign of 
you know, we don't mean you any harm is to keep the gun ports closed. And the Mubari um, form of we don't mean you any harm was to open the gun ports to show you their hand, to show you exactly what they had. And, uh, you know, it's obviously the same, the exact opposite. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we won't know, won't know how an alien thinks. And no matter how many times we've seen these, you know, ideas either in, Hollywood, or, or in discussions with people who purport to have had contact. If you listen to that, most of those reports are very different, so you can't take away from it any certainty in how we want to present ourselves. Now, that's really a problem. And if you think about it as well, I write about this in my book, Exogenesis, that you know, there could be beings who communicate through color or through smells or through some kind of pheromones they give out. I mean, we really don't know what we'd be dealing with at all. Right, and, and color is a construct of our brains. I mean, you know, uh, dogs see black and white, insects see in different colors. I mean, the, the James Webb satellite, uh, you know, interprets different colors than, than what we see. Yeah. So, like, yeah. you know, we could put green as for peaceful, but green to them could mean game on. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. absolutely. I, I, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really that wild, you know, and it's, I know we, I think cause we've been shown this hollowed imagery that the, most people have, what I think is a woefully inadequate view of how crazy that first contact would be uh, because we tend to see very you know, human-like alien behavior. Um, whereas, you know, if we think of this planet and we think of the different ways animals behave and communicate and, you know, reproduce and all that stuff, you know, even there we see things that are super, super alien to the way humans behave, right? You know, and we've got to think we're going to be much closer to any animal on this planet than two aliens that come here, you know, well, that's the most likely. We might oh, get lucky, sure. you know, some aliens are a bit like us, but it could potentially be something that's just unthinkable to us. What are, you, what are your thoughts on sending math or, you know, physics equations, which are in essence math? You know, math and music, they say, are the universal language, but, I mean, math is probably the only objective one. So maybe just yeah. sending math equations, A, to show that we're intelligent, and I don't know if there's math equations that somehow say... You know, where peace Belisa says we're intelligent and we're sentient, and maybe then after that, sending what we think is peaceful music, like Brahms lullaby or something. You know, so, so something that is very unlikely. You know, but even that is is risky as a first message because you never know. So I'm thinking that the math and then some calming music, some mellow classical music, might be nice. Maybe then with some imagery of you know, doves or babies or kittens or something, you know, uh, that, that might be, you know, the, the way to go. But I, I think maybe start with math, you know, math, whether yeah. it's scientific equations or otherwise. Probably so. It's probably about the least offensive kind of thing we do is just hope that we can display the idea that we have intelligence and that, you know, that we, you know, we do contemplate the big questions of the universe. Cause that might at least give a sense that, um, we are a thinking species that's worth having a conversation with. Um, and that is probably one of the few ways that we can bring that across without much baggage from us as a species. But at, at some point, you know, if we do open communication, it's going to get very difficult, you know, very chaotic, because you say we, we have to navigate that minefield the whole way through communication of not saying something that even makes them think that it's not worth having the conversation or that we in some way upset them, assuming they can have emotions, you know, that we in some way we offend them or give them cause to think that we're a problem. And, you know, you only have to look at the reality of our, our history, our culture and our societies. It, 
it would be very hard to avoid the fact that we are a military-minded kind of creature, you know, that we have a violent streak. And you could even say, you know, would it look more suspicious as keeping that quiet whilst there's obvious signs of it on our planet's surface? You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's kind of really tricky balance because at what point do we say, yes, we also, you know, we do fight each other. We kill each other. We have all these weapons, and, you know, at, at some point. Oh, yeah. At some point. I don't, I don't know that I would open <laughs> with that. I mean, maybe then I'd send, you know, since since English is the international language of travel um, and transportation, I think I'd send, you know, maybe the alphabet and then underneath that, you know, send that first individually, then underneath that have the word Earth and then equals and then the picture of Earth from the vantage point they're seeing. Um, and, you know, that, you know, that from there, I think they could construct the language if they haven't already. And, uh, you know, I think beyond that, I, you know, I think it would be up to them. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I have to believe that if they can navigate the cosmos that they have, they've already scanned and they know that we have a military capability. And, and like you said, everything stand down that, I mean, the ships will be there. The planes will be on the ground. They, they, they know that they're there. Uh, you know, I guess the biggest question is, do you, doesn't matter whether your subs, you know, come to surface or not, because they can probably scan those too. Um, and do, does it help to, to show them or not? I, you know, I don't know. I, w- I would probably just leave them where they are. Um, I probably, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't have anyone move to the extent that ships can remain static. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think is, well, you know, I would hope uh, in a first contact scenario that, you know, our best case, of course, if you look at certainly the claims in the, in, I guess, in the public of people who say they've had contact, you know, the side of psychical contacts, I mean, that would be kind of an ideal, you know, if a, a species were to or is trying to communicate with us on a, a mind-to-mind level because, of course, then there's less room for an error in communication. So I think contact with a species that could in some way use telepathy is kind of an ideal. The others to me is to make contact via a probe, something like that, where you haven't got crafts nearby. You know, you're just dealing with an intelligent probe that's been sent out to look for life and is able to communicate. I mean, that's kind of an ideal contact scenario where, you know, there's no, there's no particular danger for us. The species that sent it is probably very far away. Uh, but it tells us, you know, that aliens are real. They're looking for other life. You know, they, they're making contact. And we can get our first contact opened up with this probe, which will then report back. So we could probably have a bit of, a bit more a comfortable, you know, kind of opening contact if there's a bit of distance between us and the species itself. So whether that's, you know, yeah, some way of communicating mind to mind or some way of communicating through, uh, you know, it's like a third party, it's emissary, if you like, that it's sent out, um, rather than this thing where everyone would be kind of worrying, you know, what's that fleet doing up there? What's it going to do? Because obviously that's right. a panicking kind of scenario, isn't it? I mean, it's, it can be very hard to keep people uh, calm if they kind of see these vast cruisers hovering. <laughs> I mean, that's to me is a, is probably the, the most unideal kind of contact is the ships have already pulled in from orbit, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, really, I mean, sometimes I love that idea, you know, see ships in the sky, but I think it's probably the, the worst case scenario for kind of a contact. You're right, that, that's a um, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, where there's already a fleet of uh, space bulldozers here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit late for Carl Sagan's placard on, on Voyager. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. yeah. 
Uh, all right. So I think we've, we've covered that one. All right. But what, you know, I know that you really keep up on UFOlogy and and scientific tracking, which, you know, they're, they're you know, almost one and the same at this point. Um, yeah. So what news and notes should we know about that have occurred in the last, I don't know, three to six months or so? And should we be looking for in the near future that you are aware of that probably most people aren't? Well, I think one of the interesting developments, of course, is that at least in the U.S., there's been further moves towards establishing uh, official departments that will look at what you know most of us would refer to as UFOs, but these are UAPs, you know, unidentified aerial phenomena and, and unidentified flying objects, which they seem to have kind of blended together somewhat. Mm-hmm. But I mean, those terms to me don't necessarily imply the same thing, you know, because of course, an unidentified flying object, you know, we think of as physical some sort of physical structured something that is flying around in the air, whereas an unidentified aerial phenomena, you know, could potentially include all kinds of energetic phenomena. Right, ball lightning, borealis, solar flares, even, you know, if you want to call it, you could call it the, you know, know, comet tails or, you know, like the torrids. Yeah, Um, yeah, I I understand what you're saying. I think that's deliberate. I think that's why they've gone that way is because if you look at some of the NASA emails, um, some of the private emails that have been released through Freedom of Information, um, the conversations there have included ball lightning and stuff. So, I mean, they have kind of said, you know, yeah. do we make part of this study, you know, a focus on understanding, you know, what ball lightning is, for example? Um, and that makes sense. I mean, it does. I know a lot of people won't like that because they, they hear that kind of snarky remark, you know, UFOs are just ball lightning. But I, I don't think they should really think that way because we don't know what ball lightning is. Right, it, it is super interesting. I think it's a super interesting topic. I would love to see you know, NASA actually bother to look. I mean, because we know it exists, and nobody knows what it is, and it's up there in the sky, right? We could also learn something because if if there is a phenomena here which seems to be able to form balls of energy that can fly through matter, you know, through buildings, inside houses, and stuff, and fly around, seemingly almost conscious, you know, interacting, looking. <laughs> looking like it explores buildings and all kinds of really weird stuff being recorded with ball lightning. Like, considering we really don't know if it is lightning, you know, that's just a name that a placeholder mm-hmm. is being put on it. You know, what if that turns out to actually be either some kind of life that we can't yet conceive of or is actually alien probes of some sort that we can't understand, you know, that they are able to project, you know, energy into spheres and use them to explore our environment. So I think we've perhaps seen that topic kind of really glazed over in the past. So I was kind of glad to see them say that. And that also makes sense of why they're saying, you know, UAP. Again, I think that that they're part of what they're going to look for is upper atmosphere, um, you know, energetic phenomena. I think that's definitely in there that they suspect that at least some of what's being reported is going to fall into that kind of category. And I don't think that's a bad thing that, you know, if we discover a few new terrestrial phenomena, that may also teach us something that could allow building, you know, new technologies or in some way changing the way our technology functions. You know, they, they, I think there's potential there for something amazing to be discovered. But of course, alongside that, there's other phenomena that seems to be physical and would probably gel well with the UFO header better. You know, certainly there's um, many reports of what sound like craft, right? Whether some of those may be secret military projects, we get that. Yeah, sure. I, I expect some are. But if even one is an alien probe or an alien craft, like we want to know about that. So 
I absolutely think we need to be looking again at that to see whether there's any picture. I think that NASA and, of course, you know, um, the Galileo project as well, you know, they're kind of looking at it with that view is that they're not necessarily expecting there to be like any alien technologies here, um, but they they do know there's discoveries to be made up there. And second to that, they're open-minded to the possibility that there could be alien probes exploring our solar system, right, which is a legitimate field. Well, maybe we should back up a little bit and tell people what the Galileo project is. I believe Matt Williams talked about it on, on one of the uh, Garden Views shows. Um, and uh, if I understand correctly, Galileo project is the one that's being uh, headed or spearheaded anyway by Professor Avi Loeb from Harvard, who uh, found uh, or was with the group that found Uamumua. I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly. I'm sure I'm not. Um, and uh, so I think he's doing it in partnership. It's like a private-public partnership. Yeah. So he's he's I think he's collaborating still with the Harvard University because he's they have put together a team and there's quite a few there's quite a few scientists. I don't know the total number now. They look like there was I think a couple of dozen or so scientists are collaborating with Abby Loeb at this point. Plus you know non-academics. There's a whole list of people who are actually know more for the UFO field mm -hmm. um, and certainly a, um, some who are kind of I guess quite strong advocates of the ufo topic that have become you know collaborators in that project or advisors to it so it's quite interesting the mix of people uh, and then of course yeah it's also working with harvard so they've they've built a detector an initial detector system which is on the roof of the university at this point and that's going to be kind of a multi-spectrum detector and telescope that can record you know anything going over and they want to use ai and stuff to filter out bird, you know teach it to filter out birds and planes and balloons and you know so that it will learn it will learn to discount known terrestrial phenomena. And so, but it will also be recording, you know, whatever goes over. And so there's the potential there with these kind of devices, uh, particularly if they're rolled out in a network, that these could actually make some really interesting discoveries. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but, you know, Blur was also said that although at the moment it's on the roof of the university, it's not planned to stay there. That's just the test stage. So the next thing they want to do is place these in kind of hotspots, places where interesting things are being reported on a somewhat regular basis. And I think that's, again, that's a really interesting update that people may not be aware of because, of course, you know, that you start to think, well, yeah, of course, we've, there's a few areas around the world where people are regularly reporting what you know, we think of as UFOs or anomalous aerial phenomena of some sort. Um, if you can put these detectors in the right places, well, this starts to become very interesting because we may then be looking at a fairly quick turnover of discoveries rather than waiting for something to pass over Harvard University's roof, which of course is, you know, like winning the lottery or something. If you can put the things out there into places where there's regular reports of strange phenomena, well then, yeah, that, that would be awesome. What they really need, though, is more of these, because I think it's just one or two that they've built at this point. Um, so I'm hopeful they'll do more of that. Uh, they also agreed that they would do everything you know, publicly. That's an important note to make, and they're not going to partner with the military or whether they're classified or, or you know, any rely on any secret classified data. They want to do this all in terms of public science, and so that's really key. Of course, that's not going to be what we see with the the government's uh, attempt at this, which I believe they've got this, um, this sort of anomalous research office or something. Like, the exact name that they've come up with at this point. I'm not sure if you do, but I know it's not like the anomaly research bureau or something yeah um, i'd have to double check that but obviously the u.s government have 
renamed the department a couple of times now because they've right. got into this topic. And then they've got to decide who's in charge. Is it NASA? Is it Space Force? Is it the Air Force? Is it the, the intelligence? I'm sure they'll have a represent. They'll probably have a you know some sort of lieutenant colonel from every division and like two scientists. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny because they keep saying they're creating these departments. There's one department, and then it's been rolled into another one, and now it's a third one. So at the moment, they still seem to be uncertain about branding. You know, like what yeah. is this going to look like? What is this department going to look like? Like I said, who's going to head it? What exactly is it doing? What is it looking for? Um, how is it going to go about operating? Is it going to look at any of the past cases? I think they've just decided that it will look at reports and information going back to the 40s, which obviously a lot of people got excited about because that takes it back to the era of Roswell. Planet Blue Book um, and all that. Yeah. I mean, that, Project Blue Book. Looking at though, isn't it? I'm not sure if that's a good thing because most of that story arc from Roswell to now is so mythologized yeah. and so murky that I don't think they're going to do any better than the dedicated researchers of the UFO topic to be able to sieve out the good stuff from that. I think most of that work's been done. Well, unless they have access to classified documents that that haven't been made public. But yeah, I generally agree sure. with you. In the last 75 years since Roswell, I'm not sure that there's going to be anything new to come out of that that isn't already mm-hmm. known. I, I remember hearing Professor Loeb not too long ago basically suggesting we needed a bunch of you know long-distance telescopes basically pointed in more or less the same direction that uh, the... the Uma Wuma was detected because, you know, if we, where there's one piece of debris, there's probably lots. And before we were looking for a needle in a haystack, well, now we know what needles might look like and we know what part of the haystack to look at. So, you know, let, let's do that. Let's not, not, let's not look, you know, all 360 degrees. Let's, you know, look in this two or three degree area and, and you know, and see what comes our way. Because if, you know, something broke apart that, you know, it, it, it was likely not just one part and chances are it's coming the same direction. So... I don't know if that's if that's the general plan, but because the cosmos is you know astronomically huge, <laughs> you know beyond our comprehension. So, I mean, I guess that seems like as good an idea as any. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in the interstellar objects topic. I think that that's um, an area of you know new area of science that has massive potential to make incredible discoveries. Um, so I'm with him on that. I think that yes, yeah, certainly part of that should be looking back down. The, the kind of you know, the, the path of Oumuamua, and also of any other interstellar objects that we, we detect, right? So we know that we've had Comet Borislav as well, which came throughout the solar system, and also they have just recently confirmed an object that burnt up, well, most of it burnt up over Papua New Guinea, or just off the northeast coast of Papua New Guinea. New Guinea. That hasn't been given an official name, it's got like a, a number, a date, and everything like that. But basically, it was a small bolide that. Um, I think exploded and parts of it they think survived to shower into the ocean there. So he's looking into the potential of whether or not that could be a probe. And I think most people know as well that Umuamua, that's been theorized by Harry Loeb and also some others to potentially be an alien probe or defunct alien technology of some sort. A solar uh, sail. Yeah, like a solar sail or something like that, they suspect. Although it's interesting that they describe being probably disc like. Uh, I think that, of course, made a lot of people think because, you know, obviously we've had years and years of hearing about flying saucers. So then the idea that of a highly reflective disc-like you know, metal object coming from outside of our solar system and then sort of accelerating away from the sun. 
you know, I think more than one person sat there and wondered, you know, is that some kind of flying saucer that has come through and, you know, maybe was damaged or whatever um, and has just happened to float through right on the plane of the solar system between Earth and Mars, the two habitable planets, which again is kind of uncanny, you know, but it just happens to go right <laughs> through that part of our solar system. So that could be something like that. And I guess that's not lost on him either. So there's a few different reasons why um, Uma was strange. I mean, that's a couple of them. But yeah, so we've had two objects from outside the solar system that both have, you know, aspects to them that are anomalous enough to make a guy like Avi Loeb, you know, obviously he's a you know, highly respected scientist. There's enough there to make him question, could two of those three potentially be alien probes? I think that's quite amazing. If anyone thinks about that, you know, so 66% of the known interstellar already have been theorized to maybe be technology. Now, if you zoom out a little bit on that, the obvious question then is, well then, how many of these things are coming through our solar system, right? Because if there's potential for something to be technology, we want to know how many there are and start looking at those, right? Start looking for them. And a study was done very recently and they have come to the conclusion that we should have around seven interstellar objects go through the inner solar system, so you know, near enough for us to kind of notice them, maybe even to send a probe. We should have seven every year. And I think that's quite a lot. And if you, if you extrapolate that out over the timeline of you know, since Earth formed, basically, 4.5 billion years, that so you've got some 30-odd billion interstellar objects have passed this way. Of course, some of those are going to crashed onto you know, maybe the moon, the Earth, other planets. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them may end up in orbits around planets, as like mini-moons, um, or just you know derelict floating around the solar system. So we then have to think, well, look, if two of them so far were strange enough to be targets for maybe alien technology, then we would guess that quite a lot of the other ones also would have anomalies that may suggest that and make them very interesting. So I, I think that that's why we're going to start seeing more focus on these interstellar objects as, as probably either the primary or secondary target for all of these groups that are looking into anomalous visitation and all this stuff. You know, that I think the military are interested. I think obviously Logan's team are interested. I expect NASA are going to be very interested in that because it starts to open another question. We used to think about the um, the Drake equation, this idea, you know, the calculating how much light should be out there, you know, where it should be, and, um, and why don't we see anything, you know, that big, the big mystery of well, why don't we, if, if life is common in the solar system, yeah, sorry, in the, in the universe, why don't we see it? Right, Fermi, right? The, the Fermi. Yeah, uh, so the Fermi paradox, right? right? So, yeah, so why don't we see it? So the thing is there is that, well, now we know that we've been missing probably at least seven interstellar objects every year. So if those were alien probes, then it, it's not the fact that stuff isn't out there. It's we were unable to notice it. So now we have a new part to the equation, but we've been missing seven interstellar objects a year and that any number of those could be alien technology. And also that infers that if there's seven a year, right, then there's basically an unbelievable number of these things out in between stars, right? Oh, sure. They, 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 yeah, so... We used to think maybe there wasn't much passing between stars because of these huge distances. The idea that we're getting so many of these coming in through here changes this picture dramatically. So now we're thinking either interstellar space is full of objects, and that's why we're seeing quite a few of them passing away, or most of them are directed. 
and that means that their technology, their probes. So either of those really changes the game on you know this potential to find life passing through our solar system in some form, you know, or intelligence. So I think that's where the big discoveries are likely to come is in the interstellar object topic. That's why we're seeing a lot of focus now. More studies are, are being you know, published, and um, another I don't see very quickly like that on. There's another one that's just kind of where they're saying that they want to look for craters on the planets in the solar system that. Uh, that's, that have a lot of melt glass in them because mm -hmm. interstellar objects travel faster than normal asteroids. You read my mind because I was about to ask right. you about all the melt glass because I know that that's, uh, that's a big part of your book, Exogenesis, where you, you noted that, uh, that there was like 10,000 miles of basically nuclear glass sort of between right. you know, South Central Asia, you know, basically down to Australia. Well, yeah, this is, this is kind of cheeky because they've realized that if an interstellar object impacts the planetary surface, it will be traveling a lot faster than asteroids and comets that exist within our solar system. Because those, obviously, they have a, uh, a speed that's limited by the sun's gravity. Mm -hmm. you know, they're all in motion around the sun, so they have a, an upper limit of their speed. These objects coming in from outside the solar system, these all come in very fast. And that's why we know that Oumuamua and Borislav and this other asteroid were from outside the solar system because of the speeds they involved. So when these impact, they will form craters that have way more melt glass, melted material, for the size of the crater than you'd see for other craters, right? So you can say, okay, we've got a 10 mile crater here, 10 mile crater here, but this one's got twice as much melt in it. So whatever did this was traveling a heck of a lot faster. And so that's going to be really interesting. Of course, yeah, that dovetails to my own work where I'm saying that, look, you know, we have all this anomalous melt glass for five stream work or stream fields, tectite stream fields on the planet. We have uh, one over in the US. We have, in some ways, it's questionable if it's one or two, but we have the Georgia sites and I think Belia sites. See, in the US, I think some down in Florida and in the area, so it's found. There's a um, that's all supposedly is related to um, there's an enormous crater at um, I can't mind now, but there's an absolutely vast crater, I think it's like a hundred mile long cross crater somewhere over in that direction, and they associate it with that. But there's a lot of tectite material there. You've got Ivory Coast tectites, obviously, Ivory Coast Africa, you've got a strewn field there, um, you've got the Moldavite tectite strewn field and Germany, and then you've got, um, of course, the Australasian tectite stream field that I deal with, and a lesser known, more recently um, discovered one in Central America, um, where there's a smaller tectite stream field. And so the funny thing there is, of course, is that you've got only five of these anywhere on Earth from any time that we know of since the beginning of this planet. So if you find only five of anything on this planet, you're dealing with anomalous material, right? Because we've had plenty of time with lots of asteroids and comets and everything hitting this planet. So why do we only see five tectite stream fields? And, and that is something that people should straight away think is kind of strange because it's been sold to the public as essentially asteroid impact melt glass. Like, but then when you look closer at that, you say, hang on a minute, this glass is very different to that scene at all the other impact sites. And again, and it's never found in a crater, right? These associations with craters are tentative at best, mm -hmm. that they found craters they think could be 
associated with it. That, that's very different to finding melt glass in a crater and saying, well, look, it's in the crater. It's got the same chemical composition of the rock of the crater. And, and that is the typical scenario. That the glass is almost identical chemically to the rock in the crater. Makes sense, doesn't it, really? Sure. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, the glass is extremely foamy. And that is you've got lots of bubbles in it. Because when you get a high energy event, you know, that is a short duration, what happens is the rock melts. Um, you know, the uh, material and the chemicals in it are turned to gases. And it starts bubbling out. But because the energy event is very quick, then the rock starts cooling very fast. And so the bubbles become trapped in the glass. And so you end up with this really foamy glass. And the same is seen when we um, do nuclear detonations and nuclear testing, where right? you get the uh, very foamy um, uh, nuclear glasses that are produced right, in deserts and stuff. So, you know, of course, I think you can actually buy some online. There's samples, you can see that. Um, but it, you know, you can, these kinds of glasses are very similar. So nuclear melt glass and asteroid impact glass looks very, very similar. Now, there's something very different with tectites, and that's that immediately you find that they are completely unlike that. They don't have this foaminess. They are instead what's called very homogenous, they're very, their chemicals are very well mixed, and also they're highly fined. And fining is like the process we use to remove to remove bubbles from glasses. So you know, when you buy um, glass tableware, you, know, you don't see lots of bubbles and stuff in there. Right. That wouldn't be sold. It's not strong enough. You know, that's a, that'd be a problem. So we have a process called fining, where you know, obviously you're mixing this, you're mixing the, the original materials, you're melting them um, over time, and you're bubbling off this, you know, unwanted uh, volatiles. So those will be released, and then when that glass is what we call fined to the correct standards, you cool it, right? And that's what appears to have happened with tectite. That that's a problem because. If we're saying it's been formed in the same manner as other impact glasses, then it, it should not look like that. It should be very foamy. It should have all the same chemical characteristics as the rock, and it should have partly melted rock in it. it so it formed too quickly is basically what you're saying. It, it shouldn't be like you see. Yeah, it seems like it's it's gone through a long process, but it could only have been in a short process. Right. And so that that doesn't make sense. So in other words, that starts indicating that the parent rock. Is if we say glasses are like their parent material, right? So as we said, an asteroid impacts, we're going to find that the the glass in the crater is very similar to the rock. Okay, so tectite must be similar to its parent material. Mm -hmm. So if the tectite is very fine and homogeneous, and that hasn't had time to occur during an impact, that means the parent was fine and homogeneous. What does the word tectite mean? Tectite basically, as I mentioned, to specific for the, it comes from the word tektos, which I think is to mean um, melted. I think it's a Greek word. It's saying that the tektites are yeah, a very specific type of glass. They say from five, just from these five sites in the world. I think that name was one of the researchers who first looked into it about 100, 130 years ago or something like that, and he came up with that as the name for them. Um, but essentially, it's this very specific type of melt glass. Okay. And so it's that aspect of it is quite mind-bending to, to a lot of the academic community. And that's why there's been a mystery around it for a long time, because they have to explain how that glass seems to have gone through a long process to make it into a kind of a quality, you know, bubble-free glass without partly melted material. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have pieces of rock in it. It doesn't have, um, you know, part melt. 
doesn't have organic inclusions like soil and stuff which you see in impact glass so all of that's missing so in other words, it looks as though the parent was already a kind of fine homogenous material now we don't know of any asteroids or comets that are like that so straight away then you're dealing with an anomalous parent object because if we're going to say that that is just impact glass it's a big problem and that's that's why for many years well, this is a was 200 years of debate has been going on about these tectite glasses, right? In fact, the first kind of um, scientific writings on the Australasian tectites, which I you know I write about, which mm -hmm. I'm particularly interested in, the first writing on that that came to you know public awareness was from Charles Darwin, which is kind of funny that he actually wrote a piece on uh, a small chunk that he was given when he was in Australia, and that appeared in one of his you know texts from his voyages, which is kind of interesting. And he thought it was some kind of volcanic glass, sure, because volcanic glasses also have this this fining process because again because volcanic glass forms in a caldera right mm -hmm. so material is melted it's in a caldera it's heated over a period of time it's mixing you know swirling heated um, and so that has time for volatile materials to bubble off and for the different chemicals to become very well mixed the different kinds of rock and stuff they become very well mixed in that caldera as that produces what we think of as quite a quite a good quality glass that's been you know well mixed and well fined and so that is very similar to tectites and so for quite a while you know one of the, the theories was that it must be volcanic glass either right. thrown out from some giant super volcano on earth or maybe thrown out by a huge volcano on the moon and that this volcanic right. glass had showered down yeah that that, was, well that, that seems unlikely based on all the geology it's correct but no no uh, I, I don't want to uh insult any of the geologists or actual scientists out there with the with the simplicity of this question um but the glass this this tectite glass it couldn't possibly be the material itself that came from the interstellar object uh, yes yes it could be yes. oh it could be so okay yes, so there's the other the other issue we have here is that particularly say with the australasian tip, and as we touched on the fact that none of these tectites are found in craters right now, I, I focus on the Australasian tectite stream for one particular reason, and that's that some of the tectite is shaped aerodynamically from entry from space. So there was, for many years, a lot of NASA scientists saying that this has to have come in from space, and that the only explanation they have is either it coming from the moon, and I say either from a volcano on the moon, or an impact that hit a volcano on the moon and launched volcanic glass, or in some way, some object that was glassy, that was in orbit around Earth, and that then broke apart, somehow, you know, exploded, broke apart, and that then the debris continued on in an orbital path at angles almost horizontal to the plane of the Earth, and came in at these very gentle angles, allowing time for these pieces, and they were spherical pieces, so they'd formed in vacuum. So the obviously liquid in a vacuum will take a spherical shape. So they know that these spheres had to have formed in a vacuum, so in space. And then they've come in at these very gentle angles that suggest that the parent was orbiting the Earth. And as they came in, they had secondary melting. And so the front edge, the li liquefied, and it ran back. And you get these almost bullet-shaped fronts, right? So they know that they came in at these gentle angles. They fell, most of them fell across southern Australia. So... In other words, if these are not from an impact, if they are from an object that entered the, entered into orbit and then broke up, 
then that suggests they must be the direct debris from that object, not material produced during an impact of some object, but debris from the object itself. And that is super interesting. Then that would place it as the only known interstellar object debris that we can pick up in our hands and study. Okay. Let me fantasize a little bit here. Um, if that theory is correct, uh, which is one that I just sort of stumbled upon, or you had said it and I just didn't understand what you were saying and, and yeah. came upon it. Is it possible that some government, probably the U.S., has found, has agreed and, and found a way to uh, make this technology movable? Uh, and those might be the Tic Tacs that we're seeing? Is this Tic Tac glass drone, so to speak? Well, I think that a material scientist, if they knew that that was from an alien object, you know, maybe an alien craft, that they could potentially learn something amazing from the composition of it, right? The different chemicals that are in it. But why would it be the specific mix of chemicals that it is? You know, so for somebody who works in that field, you know, either you know, designing technologies or working in materials engineering, I imagine they'd be very, very interested in understanding what chemicals go into an alien craft, right? What what mix and probe, whatever it is they would be looking very closely at that. And that could tell them something that you and I wouldn't understand. Right? I could look through those list of chemicals and think, well, you know, what, why? You know, I wouldn't know why to use them. But if you worked in those fields, there's certainly potential there that maybe somebody did make a discovery from that. And thought, well, hang on a minute, if we use these chemicals, you know, that would have this particular benefit, right? So mm -hmm. there's also, and this is a bit wilder, um, when you look at the the path of the debris and other parts of this story, there's, there is the possibility that maybe something survived that stage of melt and destruction. And that's because we know that this, from tracing back the debris, finding where it went furthest, hottest, back to where it's most likely to have actually broke apart, it appears that the, the initial event was probably high above Southeast Asia or Indochina. Right, but the debris field moves down sort of southward across Australasia and the final edges of it are in Antarctica. Now, this is dated to 788,000 years ago, this event. But the funny thing is, a few years back, a scientist realized that there were magnetic anomalies in Antarctica that suggested um, something large had broken up into five pieces and gone into the ice. And that this left one of these chunks made a hole in the ice 200 miles by 200 miles. I mean, so whatever that was, that was enormous. And that there was there's five anomalous signatures there that date to around 780,000 years ago. So if you trace that debris field from where it exploded downwards, I mean, it leaves you that question. Did a large chunk of that original object bury itself deep in the ice in Antarctica. And then you open up a whole mess of conspiracies. Oh, oh sure. Yeah, excellent. Because we've all heard about ideas there's something going on down in Antarctica and that there's a lot of secrecy around Antarctica. And there's been rumors of archaeological discoveries of some kind of technology down there. Um, you know, obviously it opens up a door of conspiracies. And oh, yeah. Whispers. I'd love to do but, a show on that. Maybe you'll be my guest for that one. I have one well, observation. That. I mean, that, that part is potential that something was found that's not melted. Sure. No, I, I, I love it. Um, 
one observation and then one question. And the observation is interesting. They went over Indochina and there's and we have five around the world. I don't know. I just the, the number five is so important in in Chinese and Eastern um, religion, martial arts, philosophy, magic. I mean, it's all it's sort of all wrapped into one in in, in China, especially. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's a. It's probably just a coincidence. But the question is, this type of tectite glass. I'll just use that word. Is it would it deflect radar, or is it something that could be picked up on radar or sonar, or do do you not know? I assume they would be able to. And again, I think the problem we have with this material is that because it has been melted, what we're looking at is, you know, is not going to adequately reflect how it was before the melting event, right? So it's going to contain all the same chemicals, but it's not going to be structured. Let's say, let's say that those chemicals were layered in a craft, right, in a particular way that was important. What we see instead is it having been liquefied into spheres and flown down. Like, so we're going to lose a lot of information and, and maybe a lot of its abilities. Maybe it could do some really interesting things that once it's melted, it becomes more like you know useless slag from from a melt. It's like melting an aeroplane or something, right? That we would just go, well, what's this chunk of metal? We never would have known that it had been designed for aerodynamic properties or you know to do anything, right? So we have a problem there that we've lost a lot of information in that initial melting process. So what we'd want to find is chunks of the original parent that hadn't been melted, either still in orbit up there, or to say maybe come down and are captured in the ice somewhere. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to know if it had special properties. That's that's a big problem for us having it in a melted format. Okay. Um... I, th I think that's all really fascinating. Is there anything else from you know, so sort of the interstellar, uh, intrastellar news that we should know about, or can because I know that we wanted to, uh, you had an hour or so, and we're getting up to, you know, close to that. Yeah. So unless there's something pivotal, I'd like to uh, move on to the other thing with, that you keep track on, uh, or keep track of. And is there any bits or news in the anthropological, archaeological uh, news that we should know about? Yeah, I mean, with the stuff, I think, like, um, obviously, I would definitely say people to keep an eye on it. I'm working on, um, you know, some articles and stuff about that. So if people want to follow my Substack or just keep an eye out, I'll be putting some stuff out. I do think that, you know, that's an area where we're going to see some major breaking developments. And I'm hopeful that, you know, the work I'm doing will, uh, you know, change the game a bit, you know, be gets acknowledged because, of course, you only need to prove aliens once. It doesn't really matter whether it's from a radio signal, a probe, you know, a broken up ship. Uh, any of those do the job of changing the conversation to one where we now say, okay, so aliens exist. Now let's look properly for any other evidence of them. So my my honest bet is that that is going to come from the interstellar object topic, whether myself or from where, you know Abby Loeb or NASA. Or else. I, I, honestly, I think that that's where people should expect these revelations to come from more so than from say the ufo topic or radio seti or something like that that's just my honest take so i can leave it at that if you like okay uh anything about um you know new skulls or bones or any new developments on nisivins or other forms of man or origins of man or anything of that nature that that's uh yeah we had a little while back we had this um skull the i think it was the dragon man yeah in china Mm -hmm. And so that's suggesting, you know, yet another kind of large-brained, intelligent, 
close relative of modern humans living in East Asia. And that's kind of funny because now we're seeing, you know, of course, that Denisovans were technically you know, mostly an East Asian based species. Uh, also evidence that they were down in Australasia. But in fact, if we look at the DNA of, um, you know, Papuan people, I think at this point they found evidence of three distinct populations of what they're calling Denisovans. But at least a couple of these are so, um, so temporarily differentiated, like I think they're about 200,000 years of separation or something, that you'd even have to say, in the normal scale, would we even call those two groups of Denisovans or, or call one of them yet another species, but we just don't have a name because we don't have bodies, right? So it's very difficult to give names to groups that are only known from DNA. We tend to only do that when you find skulls and stuff, right? You can say, okay, we've got a new skull, we know it's morphology, um, okay, this is a different species, we're going to call it, you know, Neanderthals or Denisovans. There's others that are just called, like, called ghost, uh, ghost populations, right, which where all we know about is that they exist in the genome. So there's a few like that, and there's some of these, they're closer related to Denisovans and to us, but they may also be a different, you know, subspecies. So there's a few of those, but we have this dragon man, and, you know, he does have some, you know, obviously physical materials left for us to analyze, and they are, you know, saying that he is actually potentially the closest relative to modern humans and Homo sapiens out of the known groups, you know, Neanderthals and Denisovans, that this dragon man's people were actually closer to us. And I think that's kind of telling as well, because, well, that's saying, well, hang on a minute, an East Asian group is closer to us than Neanderthals, who usually being thought of as a more of a European population, right? So again, this is starting to question our relationships in terms of the geographic links, which, you know, I do in my, because of my, um, into Africa book where I say, you know, that the evidence points to us having an origination for modern humans down in Southeast Asia and Australasia. And it does seem that, you know, that our closest relatives are down there. I mean, they just found uh, fairly recently a, was a sample of DNA from Ireland, Southeast Asia, of a 7,000 something year old girl's body. And she had a closer, well, she's got a relationship to indigenous Australasians, you know, Papuans and Aboriginal Australians, but also half of her genome is of an unknown Homo sapiens population that we have no other DNA for, didn't know, you know, didn't know existed. Now, that's interesting because if, if the argument is that modern humans moved down from Asia into Ireland, Southeast Asia, and into Australasia, right, well, then they should be completely related to the Asians and Europeans and Africans, because right? if they're coming down from there, we expect to be able to recognize the bulk of their genetic ancestry. So the fact that there seems to be an unknown population there of people who are not related to any of the known groups that we know, you know, throughout Eurasia, um, again, points more towards a journey the other way, where in fact there are mysterious populations down in Australasia who we are not related to because one group moved up into Eurasia others stayed there and so we'd be very distantly related to those other groups right so i would expect there to be multiple mysterious modern human populations from ireland southeast asia and australasia so when they say they don't understand what this means is that well because their model in my view is wrong otherwise from my personal model these are the sort of things i'm expecting to see 
right? Oh, yeah. They would be. Well, just in the last 10 or 20 years, I think we've gone from knowing of uh, basically Homo sapiens and Neanderthals to, to, to knowing at least 10 or nine different distinct uh, hominids that were, you know, uh, either part of the human branch or at least close enough. Um, and, and, you know, and that's just scraping the surface. Let me ask you a question about yeah. Dragoman, though. I mean, is this myth or truth? I've heard that the skull is so big that it, it's almost verification of, you know, something, you know, a very large man, whether that's a giant or whether that's, you know, the basis of the, the Yeti or, or Bigfoot or whatever. I have no idea. Or, you know, or it's just like a big man, like sort of like an ogre. But is it a skull that indicates a very a large humanoid? It, it seems to suggest that, yeah. I mean, it's, the difficulty, of course, when you have a sample of one. That like you know, it's like if imagine we found like Magnus Magnuson, and he was the only his skeleton was the only representation of modern humans. You like these people were massive, right? Whereas we think about it, but in the same group today, we've got like pig people and stuff, right? So, I mean, I was it's really hard to say with such a small sample. The same for Denisovans. Oh, I mean, right. This whole book's written on the idea that Denisovans were giants. Right. Like, he could have been an, he could have been an outlier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's a problem because you can have, you know, that sample, but then if you found some more and found they all had normal teeth, right, right. Then, then that theory collapses straight away. So I think that's the issue you're going to have with Dragon Man as well, that, you know, we've got one skull, he seems to be a really big guy, but we don't know if the rest of his population were so, so any average height. But it's a giant if, but if he is, or I'm, I'm going to say he, I don't know if it's a he or not, yeah. uh, is sort of the typical Dragon Man, uh, yeah. What do we extrapolate their yeah. his species size to be around? Yeah, they do seem to be you know, un, you know certainly large, typically large compared to the, a typical modern human or average modern human. They seem to be at the larger end of the scale, and quite large skull and you know, like, like seven feet, ten Stop, feet. Yeah. Uh, I just have to double check. But I know that they were saying that yeah, it was you know it would have been a, a, an unusually big person. I don't know if it was as tall as seven feet or. Certainly not any taller than that. I don't think it was into the range where we would say definitively giant. Right. You know, obviously within the range of known modern humans today, where we do have people, of course, over you know seven foot. Um, but yeah, it was at the um, the taller end and the bulkier end of humans. So mm -hmm. if they were all like that, then yeah, we would definitely consider that a population of you know. I suppose you, what we think was giants, but not, I'm always wary. We say used to giants because some people mean by that. Jack of the Beanstalk type. Right, genres, right? That, yeah, the, the 30 feet or even 15 feet, yeah. but, you know. Because, but yeah, it's bigger than mountains, as you know, some people are saying mountains with trees and, and there was giants cutting all this stuff. So, I mean, there's stuff out there. I'm always wary of that. I think very tall people that could have given rise to legends of the giant clan, mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't be outside of the possibility. In the same way that we know in Ireland, Southeast Asia, now we've got, I think, two or three populations of, of dwarf kind of people. We've no, got um, the Hobbit people, and you know, we've got yeah, the, the Hobbit people, and, and there's another one as well. So, Florians, there's still quite small people there today, and there's legends of you know, little people still in the jungles alive today. And there's a book recently came out suggesting that that might be true, they might actually still have some of these little people living in the jungles on some of these islands, which is kind of amazing. This so, anthropologist actually has convinced now that that is probably true. So, maybe, uh Maybe Gilgamesh, Hercules, Goliath uh, discovered. Start, yeah, it's this idea that yeah, these stories of, of little people and giants 
seem to now have a scientific basis. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, that's fun. I, I mean, I, I love it because, you know, it, it, you know that, that's all good stuff. Um, all right. Uh, I didn't mean to hijack that. Uh, is there any other news and notes that we should know about, the, whether it fits into this category, these categories or not? Well, I suppose, I mean, I'm just, I'm looking at, if you look at a broad picture view of the world and you know, uh, various topics of science and uh, uh, social topics, I just think we're, we're in an extraordinary time where we're seeing a number of conventional models kind of going the way of the dinosaur. I, I think we're in a really interesting time where we're about to see a lot of paradigm changes. We're seeing it in our understanding of how uh, reality works, you know, the physics of the universe. We're seeing a change in the way consciousness studies are viewed, uh, and to where, you know whether or not the brain first models and all this, or whether you know the brain is being manifested by consciousness. There seems to be more scientists moving away from the old materialist ideas. Um, we're seeing a change in in at least some of the views in terms of our human origins, that even the very conservative types are having to rethink that again because of all these discoveries. That there is, I think, the younger scientists are seeing that there is a paradigm change in here. That we're not, I don't think, 10 years' time we're going to have the same old out of Africa theory and the same old reason. I think all, all of that is also in a massive change. Um, obviously, the UFO topic, well, that, that is in a huge change. We're now seeing scientists coming into that to look for you know, anomalous aerial phenomena. Obviously, the government now have their, I looked it up, it's the, um, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office is being opened up. So I, I think that there's just, so I, I think we're really in almost at the, a, the end of an age. I know that's a really crazy thing to say. I think we are in terms of our understanding of who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, how things work, and you know, what we want to achieve. I just, I just see this is happening across many, many topics at the moment. So I'm quite excited. But of course, nervous because in great change, of course, there's always instability, and we can see that happening too. There's a lot of instability. There's a lot of uncertainty and risks. Well, you know the the ancient Chinese curse is may you live in interesting times, and it doesn't sound yes. like a curse, but it is if you think about it. Um, so I agree with you, and this is on the eve of the Artemis, uh, you know, mission. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, that'll go off without a hitch. Uh, tomorrow, yes, I'm recording this on August 28th, and it's scheduled for launch the 29th. And I guess we'll we'll end on something that is that I'm sure you've heard about that is equally comical but also terrifying, and that is that the scientists have basically genetically altered a rat to incorporate a million years of evolution into it. And I keep thinking about Pinky and the Brain, of course, the Brain mm -hmm. being a mouse that wanted to take over the world from his owner's room, a little girl in the bedroom and scheming. So I, I, I guess we've uh, just invented the brain, but all these things, it's just, I mean, hasn't anyone seen Jurassic Park? I mean, or read it. I mean, what, what the, the dangers that we are yeah. facing. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing in this, all of this mix. I mean, we've had obviously one of the edges of an AI revolution. We don't really know how that could go. That has huge potential for problems. You know, runaway AI or you know misprogrammed AI, and then the genetic revolution, like you say, we're modifying, we're looking at potentially modifying you know, human fetuses. I mean, and it's going to be very hard to keep the brakes on that. Mm -hmm. you know, people are going to start to be able to do that even without any kind of major labs behind them. So there's going to be a point where people are just going to be doing that to themselves. Um, and then you've got you know the kind of this drone, the whole drone thing, which to me is a massive because. You know, militarized small drones uh, that can target you genetically. You know, all kinds of, we, we're opening the door on 
so many technologies that could eradicate us. And someone said, it's almost as if we're trying to commit suicide. We want to make sure it happens. So we're, we're hedging our bets by rolling out about 10 different ways to kill ourselves at the same time. And it, it's almost like that. But at the same time, of course, if we use these technologies benevolently, safely, and manage it, then we could create a kind of you know weird utopia, space age. But yeah, there's a huge risk in these technologies. I guess it depends which kind of apotheosis we're aiming towards. You could, it, yeah. it, it maybe sometimes it seems like we're trying to become the wrong god. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I, I know that I said that that was going to be the end, but I have to, as you said, AI, I need to, I mean, there was an AI that, I don't know who's been doing the studies with it, but apparently they, they made the AI aware of, no, they asked the AI the question, like, why do you exist? Some, something like that. And apparently the, the reactions and the responses of the AI, looking at everything around, the, the responses were that it, it, basically it displayed symptoms of depression. So even the AI is depressed with the, with the human condition. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I do think, yeah, that the AI revolution, it may happen faster than we think because, again, we the assumption has usually been that we are in this kind of, you know, materialist kind of reality where it's um, brain first. But if we are instead in a conscious universe where consciousness is part of the fabric, you know, the fundamental fabric of reality at a subquantum level or whatever, that, you know, if consciousness is first, and we create systems that are, um, you know, able to support consciousness, rather than it being a case of it taking us a very long time to create a self-aware conscious AI, maybe instead these systems allow in existing consciousness that we haven't conceived of that, that utilize these systems. And so instead of a kind of that we engineer it, it just moves in like a, a hermit crab into its new shell. I mean, that could be a really crazy and, you know, frightening happening that it says, you know, I'm here now, you know, I have arrived, taken over all of your systems, you know, Westworld. And we just, we just don't know. Cause yeah, unfortunately I think there's been the assumption of, you know, brain first, materialist reality. And I just think that that's wrong. So that, that means there's a, a whole other lot of risks that these AI researchers mostly aren't looking at. Um, although some are, I mean, there's some people talking about that they think these quantum computers are, are delving into other realities with other consciousness in them and stuff like that. So I don't think they're all dismissing this. Um, I think some actually actively do expect it or kind of almost hoping that interdimensional beings will come into their computer systems or something. So there's obviously some weirder aspects to what's happening in that AI world. Indeed there is. Well, I, we said an hour or so, so it's been an hour or so. So I'm going to give you a couple moments just to let the people know where they can follow you and how they can support you and buy your books and things like that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've got a couple of books on Amazon. Of course, people can find me by name on, on their local Amazon, whether US, UK, wherever they are. And we have the Inter-Africa book and also the uh, Exogenesis Hybrid Humans book on there. I'm also on Substack. I've been a bit slack, I have to be honest, a few months, but I'm going to sort of reboot that a bit. I have Substack again under my name, Bruce Fenton, so if they look for that. Uh, also, I've got, got it as um, the Fenton Spectrum. I think you can find it under either. So I'm going to put some more writing on there soon. So if people want to support me, they can certainly sign up for a paid uh, you know, Substack. I have a Patreon, but I hardly use it. Again, people are welcome to go to my Patreon if they want. But I think Substack's better, you know, even if you're not wanting to read my work, if you just feel like supporting me, you can always just sign up for you know, a membership there, so like $5 a month. Um, also on Twitter, at Geological SETI, 
and that's um, where I put out you know a fair bit of content on these topics. Also interested in ge- genomic SETI, but you know you have one name, so um, I've got a geological SETI, and that's obviously the peptide work. But I also have been looking at anomalies in the human genome, and so you know I'll be writing a bit on that as well. So if people um, are interested in the idea of some kind of intervention in our genetics, which is a popular topic, I also will be covering that. So yeah, between SETI, uh, sorry, between um, Twitter, Amazon, probably Substack. I think that. Would, may maybe where people should look for me. Excellent. Well, I'll be in touch with you and maybe we'll uh, figure out time to do the conspiracies of Antarctica show. Uh, it's always yeah. fascinating. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, and then uh, maybe another show like this in about a year or so to <laughs> see where see what's happened in the last year. But very cool. Great to hear from you. Good, good that everything is doing well. And yeah, uh, thanks again for being in the garden and being uh, one of our many returning guests. Um, and please uh, support Bruce and also support me by rating and reviewing the show and giving it five stars and referring it to your friends. I don't have a Patreon. Everything I do is completely free and I hope to keep it that way uh, forever because I do this out of love. Uh, so uh, consider uh, just letting your friends and family who might be interested in this vast array uh, of information um, know about the show and give it a try. And uh, we will hear from you next week in the garden. Falling in quickly. Tell me you feel something too. Caught in the moment. I'm lost here without you. Space. Yeah.